I just want to say hallelujah. Turn your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We honor the Word of God by standing and reading His Word. You've got a blue pew Bible there. Please read it. Look at the text itself. This is God's very Word, and we have it as a gift to us from God. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35 through to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we praise you that you are the one who has created the universe you have created the winds and the seas you have created the dry land you have created even our own very existence so we acknowledge you as the creator and though this world in all its rebellion even from our first parents adam and eve all this rebellion has brought corruption to this world, we thank you that you are the kind of God who didn't just wipe us all out, but rather you have provided a way of salvation, a way to be delivered from the wrath to come. And so we praise you this morning, even for our only comfort, our only hope in life and death, it is in Christ alone. We thank you for this gift of salvation in him, We do pray that you would help us in this journey that we all take through this world, through this life, with all of its perils, with all of its follies, with all of its sin, with all of its calamity, and even even with the threat of death. Lord, we do lament as we feel the effects of sin in our world, even as there are people in this congregation who are grieving the loss of loved ones, others who are grieving a difficult diagnosis uh, of terminal illness, others who are, have received other medical news 
about themselves or about family members that are troubling and painful and difficult, as we see sin ravage people that we love and destroy them, as we see sin ravage our communities and destroy them, Lord, we lament the, the wages of sin being death. We lament that. But we do rejoice that Jesus Christ came and loved us enough to be a substitute for sinners, even being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that having passed through death and by his resurrection, all of us who are in fear of death, we can have hope in him beyond the grave. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, even as many are here with a heavy heart, even as many are here plagued with many cares and troubles, even as from the Sunday school and other conversations, as people think about just how sin has affected them and even living in this fallen world. Lord, with these laments, we still want to rejoice that you are on the throne and we look to you to continue to change us. We thank you for the growth in this church as people are being saved, as people are being sanctified, coming into membership in the church. We thank you that there is transformation going on here and we ascribe it to you and you alone. Lord, because of your great power, we pray for our lost families, those that are trapped by false ideologies, false religions, false beliefs. We pray that you would break through and that you would grant them repentance and, and an awakening of faith, cause them to have life from the dead. We pray as well for our communities and for our province in particular with this upcoming election. We pray that, we, we just ask, Lord, for you, by your mercy, you would hold back wickedness here. Hold it back. We don't deserve you, we don't deserve you being merciful to us. But we ask that you would, that you would be merciful to this land that so often neglects you and shakes its fist at you. We pray that you would grant mercy to the province of Alberta, even through the political realm and through this upcoming election. Lord, we pray that we would be a praying people. You would grant us a spirit of prayer as we appeal to you to have mercy in the midst of judgment. But Lord, we thank you for the great mercy the great grace even, the undeserved favor of your word. We thank you for it. We pray as we hear your word preached that you would cause it to be so empowered by your spirit that we would see that this is not merely a sermon from a man, but your Holy Spirit is actually doing a direct work in every heart here. You, are, you alone are the one who can do this. So we ask that you would, that you would be exclusively glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
the ministry of Jesus Christ has been called a replay of Israel's experience as a nation. Now, as soon as I say the term replay, many of you are thinking to the Oilers' great victory. And this is a case of me loving my enemies, to use an Euler illustration in my sermon. I'm trying to grow. But you know, on the ice, the ref's decision is, is re, the, re, the video is replayed over. And it's, it's this idea of a replay or, a, or what some will call a recapitulation where Jesus replays all of Israel's history. It's as if Jesus is, is, as it were, this new screen upon which Israel's history is replayed. So events and experiences that are recorded in the Gospels, they're intentionally selected out of all the events in order to highlight the fact that although, as Hebrews 1 says, at many times and in many ways God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So, when we come to this passage, and you might be thinking of, you know, the simple Sunday school, what we used to say, the flannel graph, but nobody uses them anymore, the picture storybook Bible of Jesus calming the storm, you might think that this all appears very quaint and therefore irrelevant. But if you assume that, that would be a big mistake because there is much more going on here. And this episode in the ministry of Jesus drives us to answer the question, the question that Mark is putting to his readers throughout, and it is the question, who is Jesus? Now, everybody here at some time, likely, has had the nightmare of feeling like you're drowning. And usually I have that nightmare when I'm snoring and my wife thinks I'm going to choke to death. Uh, just revealing a little bit about our lives. But what is that fear? Because it's a deep-seated fear, right? It's not about the water. It's this fear. It's a fear that the water would go up, 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 up over your nose and you would not be able to reach up high enough to get up above the drowning water. The situation in Mark 4 on the Sea of Galilee was this. Verse 37, you have this great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I've been on the ocean. I'm very much a prairie boy. I, I like lots of land around me. Uh, I don't like the idea of waves crashing and filling the boat with large volumes of water. It's just not my preference. Probably not yours either, but I just I like to be on dry ground. But this is this kind of 
experience, whether it's the nightmare of drowning or, or the, the thought of being on a sinking boat, this is where your personal experience actually will give you insight into the experience of these folks in this storm, in this sinking boat. You can resonate with what's going on. Because each one of you here, you're, you're a rational creature. You would see the waves. You would see the volume of water, and it's coming into the boat, into the boat and you would make a quick cal- calculation about how big is this boat, How much volume of water is coming in? You'd calculate that quickly, how soon it would be before there was more water in the boat than kept outside the boat. And you just, your your mind would just be spinning very quickly as you're calculating this. Many people who live anxious lives will nevertheless pride themselves on their rational natures. You know, how, how can this airplane with these heavy engines and baggage and all these people safely fly in the air and stay there? I'm a rational person. This doesn't make sense. But it's like being rationally anxious about the fear of flying or the fear of drowning. I can tend to be rational only in limited doses. Our view is limited. Our awareness is only 10 degrees of the 360 degrees. But what are we afraid of in such a situation? We are afraid of the inevitable, determined, unstoppable doom that is coming. That's what we're afraid of. It's determined, it seems unstoppable, it's inevitable. And if you aren't tracking with me thus far, I'm just going to say you're going to be missing out on a free group counseling session here because that's what this is. This is what the Bible does. It uses simple stories to open up the locked places inside of us that only God and us know about. So if you're in the sinking boat or the overwhelming situation, and I can just go pew by pew, and we can, you, you know, I can have you raise your hand, stand up, and tell me what is your overwhelming situation that you're going through right now? Some that people know, others that people don't know. And we could just go, go through the whole church this way. You're in an overwhelming situation, you're drowning in trouble. Then If you are feeling that way, and you come then to verse 38, to this description of Jesus, it would make you furious. I know you're not supposed to feel that way about Jesus. But it says in verse 38, But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. You would be furious. You know there's some people like this. I mean, they can sleep through anything, right? They sleep in the car. They can sleep on the plane. They're sleeping in the pew beside you, anywhere. 
But Jesus was sleeping in the midst of this nausea-inducing storm. And, and we can think his ability to sleep like this, ah, it's just simply a human quirk. But it is also true that Jesus is sleeping and he's doing it just like his ancestor David slept who said in Psalm 4 verse 8, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's remarkable that even when Jesus is sleeping, he's telling us things about himself and about who God is. Now, we might be able to see the Psalm 4 connection, but these folks in the boat didn't. Why? Because they're not thinking about going through their concordance in their Bible. They're worried about drowning. And the truth is that when we're anxious about the volume of troubles increasing all around us, it can be hard for us to pray like David and to rest like Jesus. But these folks observed what might be a frustrating picture of their Savior asleep. And frustrating might be too mild for it. They might have been straight up angry. Have you ever been angry with God? Maybe angry in a sense that you were able to admit it. Or you've been angry with God in a way that you just you don't come right out and say it, but if you were to delve deeper into why you're feeling the way you're feeling, you're actually angry at God. I've talked to many people over the years who know the Bible, who know theology, and yet when they are hurt deeply, they become angry with God. Another psalm, Psalm 44, comes to mind in one of the translations. It's a complaint spoken by Israel. Psalm 44, verse 23, and it goes like this. Wake up, Lord! Wake up, Lord! Why are you sleeping? Get up! Don't reject us forever! Didn't know you could pray like that, did you? But you certainly felt like that. Are you asleep? Don't you see what is happening to me? Don't you know what is going on in my family? Don't you know what's happening in my community? Don't you see? Are you asleep? Where are you? And if you haven't felt that, you're just not being honest. You're just, you're just faking. You're just being phony with yourself. Jesus was replaying the experience of Israel. But what's interesting for Jesus is that he could play both sides. He could play both Israel's and God's. And in this case, Jesus was the one who could help. But all of his friends saw, the only thing they saw 
was that Jesus seemed very uninterested in their situation. Which leads us then to that question. Don't you care? Don't you care? Because into this honest but anxious situation, we have the question, it forms the title of this sermon, verse 37b, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care? A guy, a YouTube guy, left-wing YouTube guy on a channel called Young Turks, his name's Sink Uger, writes in the Huffington Post, he said, he, he said this, God doesn't care about us, so we might as well care for each other. I don't mean this in a bitter way. I mean it in a very matter-of-fact way. If God cared about the gazelle, why would he have created the lion? If God cared about children, why would he kill so many of them with senseless diseases, ailments, and calamities? If God cared about people in Louisiana, why would he keep sending hurricanes to ruin their lives? End quote. That's how a lot of people think. And these Jews in a boat were facing a hurricane and death themselves, and they said, Don't you care, Jesus? Don't you care, God? Their cry is so basic. It's such a root level. It is one that you have said likely. And if you haven't articulated it, you've felt it down deep in your heart. Don't you care? It's at the root, I would say, of all of our anxieties and bitterness. And there are people, people in this church, myself included in some ways, there are people who live with a low-level anxiety all the time. Or you can live... If it's not a low-level anxiety, it's a low-level anger. You're just always a little bit anxious, or you're always a little bit upset, frustrated, angry. The anxiety or the anger, they're two sides of the same coin, two faces of the same monster. But this is the fundamental question. Don't you care? We can ask the questions about the big things in life, the diagnosis, the job loss, the personal attack, the emotional crisis. We can ask those questions, or we can, we can come to these questions, and, and as we're asking about them, we can just come to the conclusion, well, don't you care? Don't you care about my stuff? Don't you care about my issues? Don't you care about my life? We can ask this don't you care question about just simple struggles, not the big stuff, but just the regular stuff of life. I mean, think of like Mary and Martha. Wasn't it the same feeling, you know the story, that Martha had when she looked over at Mary, relaxing, maybe on a cushion, sitting around, maybe a bit lazy, and what does Martha say? She demanded of Jesus, 
she said, Lord, do you not care? Those very words, do you not care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So in one sense, she's upset at her sister. But she's actually upset with Jesus that he doesn't care. Don't you care? Aren't you seeing what I'm doing here? See, this is the kind of stuff that people don't think you should talk about or bring up. Because you're not supposed to speak about these things as you talk about Jesus. But the simple fact is every person here has these thoughts, has these feelings. And the question is, what happens when they come? What happens when they arise? What happens when you start asking that question deep inside, don't you care, God? This is the critical issue. Theologians and pastors have reflected on this, and they have, have kind of looked at this, this feeling of being abandoned. Because that's what it is, right? You know, don't you care? I feel like I'm being abandoned. Some will call it spiritual desertion. So godly pastors have taken this theme of spiritual abandonment or spiritual desertion in order to counsel their flock. Now, one of these pastors was the Dutch Puritan Gilbertus Vodius in the 17th century. He wrote a book on the subject of spiritual desertion, which Joel Beakey's company, many of you were at the conference, his company recently republished in English. Although when I look to go find it, like I think it must be printed in gold or something because it was so expensive. Uh, so if you can find a copy, you can talk to me. Maybe I can see if I can connect you. Vodius had been a pastor in the Netherlands. Uh, he, was also, he also trained men for the ministry, sort of like we're privileged to do here with Union School of Theology. So he's in the Netherlands. Men would come from Hungary to Vodius in Utrecht in order to get training. Their own country in Hungary at that time was under cruel Muslim dominion for about a hundred years at that point. The Hungarian men had felt like their country had been abandoned by God. That's what they felt like. Vodius trained these men to face spiritual desertion and to trust in the promises of God. These men... They had to learn it because when they looked at their country of Hungary, they thought, God, don't you care? Don't you care what's happened to our beloved country? Don't you care, Jesus? Don't you care that we are perishing? What about us? We think about us. What about, what about us? Not the, not the 17th century. What about the 21st century in Alberta? What about us? Drag queen story hour. Baby murder without limit, elderly murder on a whim, irreversible mutilation on a notion. God's even said that He gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations 
for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1. So when you see that, see that, I I think this gets at a lot of folks here. When you see that, don't you get a little bit frustrated? And you'll say you're frustrated with the government, right? But really, deep down, the frustration is a frustration with God. Don't you care, God? You don't come out and say that because you're not supposed to, right? But that's kind of what you're feeling. Your general anger and frustration becoming an angry Christian might be that you're frustrated with God. Don't you you care that the influence of Christianity in Canada is perishing? Don't you care that church buildings are being converted into concert halls and pubs? Don't you care that single Christian women cannot find a godly Christian man to marry in this pornified culture? Don't you care that a single Christian man cannot find a godly Christian woman who wants to have a family with him and accept him as he is, not as they wish him to be? Don't you care that people in this congregation have faced horrific traumas of abuse, of loss, of pain, of hardship, of disability, of persecution, and of deep, deep sadness? Don't you care? If you haven't had the question asked toward the Lord, don't you care, then you've either been living as a practical atheist or you're just not very good at articulating what's going on in your soul. At this point, however, the men in the boat with all of their rational projections about a near future of death by drowning, they didn't include one part of the formula. They were missing a piece in the formula that would change the solution. The men in the boat, like you and me, didn't realize who was in the boat with them. You just don't know. It's not grasping that verse 39 and he 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 awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm mark describes this as a rebuke now in your house if a child gets rebuked It's because they're doing something they shouldn't have been doing and they're to stop doing it immediately. Stop hitting your brother. right? Stop eating all the pulled pork before dinner. Sorry, guys. Actually, generally it's me. I'm eating it beforehand. Stop eating it. Wait. Maybe Mark had in mind Psalm 104, verses 6 and 7. 
You covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Jesus rebuked the storm. And when he spoke to the sea, the result was like Psalm 114, verse 3. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. Verse 5, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. Verse 7, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. That's what Jesus is doing. He's replaying and recapitulating all of these psalms and all of this experience of Israel, both from the flood, both from the exodus, both from the crossing of the Jordan. You see, in the calculation of the inevitable doom, we can forget that the Word of Christ is the Word of God. Peace. Be still and keep being still. All of the previous rational formulas are broken. All of the, it is what it is. Have you said that? I've said it. It is what it is. All of that is interrupted. All of the, same old, same old. It's gone. If Jesus says there will be peace, then peace there will be. Katrina von Schlegel wrote in the 18th century, and though we know, we know very little about her life, we know a lot about her experience because she wrote this. She said, Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know His voice who ruled them while He lived below. Be still my soul, because it's still the same Christ. You see, the interruption which God brings is the point of this episode. Jesus interrupted the determinism and the doom of their fears, and He exercised His ability to reverse all circumstances. And this is, of course, a repeated theme in the Bible. From Abraham being provided with a ram to sacrifice instead of his son right at the last minute. Or Jonah, very much echoed here. Jonah, who slept in the boat, was tossed overboard to his near-drowning death, only to be delivered by a fish appointed by God to resurrect Jonah and spit him out on dry land. God is an interrupter. He interrupts. He converts doom into delight. He redeems bankruptcy with an inheritance. He brings light out of darkness. Now the text does not make any statement to say that Jesus is God. But that's the point. Jesus has chosen to show rather than tell. And He's showing who He is. 
And so then we're brought then to the application of Jesus' demonstration of this miraculous, exclusively divine power. Jesus said to him in verse 40, he said to him, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That's pretty cutting. It's the kind of question that Jesus asks every soul here. He asks it of you. It cuts right through all of our pride, all of our selfishness. It cuts right to the heart. Maybe you, maybe you think, well, I'm not being proud. I'm being anxious. I'm the victim. I'm the vulnerable one. I'm not in the position of pride and self-centeredness. But that's the problem, you see. Because our anxiety or our anger, is rooted in our deep-seated fear. We're afraid. You might think that you're a rational thinker and you always want to think about how bad things can go and you're not wanting to be naive, but really you're just scared. You're scared. And your pride will not let you look for true reasons to feel secure. You arrogantly, stubbornly stand back from the security that is offered because you think, well, what, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And so some of us have graduate degrees in whataboutism. And it's simply pride and arrogance that won't let our anxiety and our anger be confronted by Jesus. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Our greatest symptom of pride is that we ignore the truth of who is in the boat. We're just acting like, oh, I don't know. Or I'm going to act like he's not in the boat. Or that it doesn't matter. Who is with us? Who is Jesus? Because if we knew who he was, then we would trust him, even if it appears like he's sleeping. He's sleeping. I don't know why he's sleeping. I don't know what he's up to. I don't know what's going on, but I trust him. Yeah, well, the waves are coming in. It's kind of like, okay, it's your boat. It's your deal. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to trust you. This goes against my rational thinking, but hey, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. We would trust Him, even though we would be rightly afraid without Him. We would trust Him, even though His timing is far different than our timing. And that's what faith is all about. Trusting Christ for who He is and leaving the results to Him. Leaving the results to Him, rather than what you're doing and what I'm doing, which is trying to control the results ourselves and force Christ to fit into our formula. Get off the cushion, Jesus. You start, get a pail, man. Start getting the water out of here. Fit into my formula for how we're going to save us. And so with real honesty and a very blunt candor, 
Mark then records the feelings of the boat passengers who witnessed all of this. And he writes in verse 41, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the question. Who is this? They'd been so caught up in their own little drama that they hadn't really grasped who was in the boat with them. And, and, and I'm guessing that's a little bit like you, and it's a little bit like me. We get caught up in our own stuff, our own little, own little theater, own little drama. You're in your little drama, and you kind of like to keep it whipped up, actually, because it makes you feel important. Oh, it makes me feel like something significant with, you know, just stirring up some drama here. Meanwhile, you're missing the eternal point. Who is this? Who is this Christ? When you recognize who Jesus is, then you can let go of the results. You can let them go. You don't have to know all the reasons that Jesus might have for doing things, for sleeping in the boat, for rebuking the waves, or dying on a cross, or rising from the dead, or ascending to heaven. These reasons are consigned to the sovereign will of God. He does all things according to His own will and pleasure. But you can also, you might not know the reasons, but you can know what it means. You can know how it applies. The country singer Granger Smith and his wife Amber lost their three-year-old son to a drowning accident. And they said this, quote, We're going to constantly search for the meaning behind all of this, not the reasons. I think the reason is very different from the meaning. I'm not going to get caught up in the reasons. I'll never know, Smith said. I don't believe that God takes anyone too soon. I'm not going to play around in my mind that there's this fictitious timeline of River, their son, graduating from college or high school or playing football because I believe that he, because I believe he was put on this earth for that exact amount of time, Smith said. The Smiths are learning that when they're tempted to ask the question, don't you care, God really intends to show them that he does and to show us that he does care and that he is who he says he is the one true and only god that's his intention you remember i mentioned these hungarian pastors that were training in the netherlands that i mentioned before the guys who were learning from gilbertus bodius about spiritual desertion well through the through the course of events these Hungarian men, they, they trained as pastors. Well, they ended up being captured by uh, the Spanish Roman Catholic forces in, the, in their Spanish takeover of the Netherlands. And so these Hungarian pastors became slaves on a galley ship chained to an oar for nine months. Now you can think of the scene from Ben-Hur, if you've seen that old movie, or John Knox. John Knox had also had the same experience of being a galley slave 
in a French ship about a century before these men. And one of the editors for Vodius's book, Spiritual Desertion, he, he describes the scene at the liberation of these Hungarian pastors at Naples by the Dutch Admiral de Roeder in 1676. So they've been chained to oars day and night for nine months. Some had struggled with the fear of abandonment by God as well as their fellow believers. The 26 survivors who were delivered, they sang Psalms 46, 114, and 125 as they were being transferred to a Dutch ship on February 11, 1676. When the transfer was complete, they knelt on the deck in their rags, in, in their emaciated condition, and they sang Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. It was said, the Dutch seamen who seldom shed tears wept openly. You might feel like that question comes up, don't you care, God? But it's also true that you should be able to pray and say, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Do you think God hears you? Consider this by way of application as I bring it to a close. That Christ himself not only replays Israel's experience, but Christ knows your experience. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He is aware. He understands. I was contemplating preaching here this morning the sermon that I had prepared for Good Friday that I didn't get to preach because I was out of town and didn't get back in time. The sermon on Good Friday was from Mark 15, 34. And it is that famous cry of Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself experienced that cry of dereliction that these sailor, these people in the boat, that they were feeling as well. Have you forsaken us, Jesus? You're sleeping there. And so what's interesting is although Jesus was the one to provide the rebuke to the storm, Jesus also went to the cross and experienced the same feelings as the people that had been crying out to Him. Jesus knows and understands the cries of your very heart. You say, He doesn't seem to hear me. No, 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 no. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows it down just with precision, down to the depths of your soul. He knows it better than you understand it. 
He knows you. So when you have those feelings of, don't you care? You might think, they they arise and it seems honest. But you have to understand, Jesus could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet say, not my will, but yours be done. And trust God that God would bring him through. And Jesus was delivered on the third day, risen from the dead, interceding, hearing the prayers of people who are wondering if God cares, and Jesus is praying for you, and He's saying, yeah, yeah, I care. I care. I know. I know what's going on. I understand. I'm with you. God provided because God cares. Christ knows and understands. And He's able to rebuke the storm or whatever overwhelming trouble troubles you. And He's able to bring you with Him into the joy of His very presence forever. And that will be peace forever. No storm will touch you there. And that is our hope But it is not a pie-in-the-sky hope. It is a hope that Jesus himself has purchased because he has gone through it and he's come out the other side for us. And we can trust him with that kind of hope. Will you trust him then? Will you trust that he cares, that he knows and cares? Do so today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Please, hear our cries. Even as we don't know what to pray, I pray that today, each person here, each soul here, would lay their burdens before you. That they would do it because maybe for the first time they have heard that you actually care and that you are able to stop the waves and give them peace. I pray that every soul here would know your peace before they leave today. Make it so, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and sing and appeal to God to bring stillness to our soul. Please stand. It's so good that you are here today. Let's pray that if if you need if the Lord is working on your heart, do not do not squelch that. Don't be phony before the Lord. Just be honest with him. If you're new or newer, we've got the newcomers lunch. Talk talk to some of the folks down there. And as you go from here, consider the future. Jesus said that, Jesus revealed to John, I should say, John said in Revelation 21, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, with all of its waves, with all of its storms, the sea was no more. No more. It's done. Over. No more waves. No more storms. 
That's the hope for those who trust in Christ. May that be true for you. Go in peace.